It's a real privilege to be with you all uh, here this morning um, at this really special event in which Andrew is formally uh, being recognized as, as being fit for ministry, to be a minister of the gospel. Um, I had the privilege of knowing Andrew, as uh, he intimated, in, the kind of formative, in our formative years when we were in high school and in college together. And I've always been impressed, um, Andrew, by your humility, uh, your hunger to learn, and uh, your refreshing honesty. Um, Andrew is a wonderful testament to the grace of God, and I suspect that you all know that. Uh, You are blessed by God to have him here, and he is a part of God's gift to you as a church, as Paul makes clear in Ephesians 4 when he talks about um, ministers of the word. And so I, I invite you to continue to honor him as I, as I hear you already are doing. I wanted to uh, spend some time this morning with you in Philippians 3. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there with me. Uh, the message I bring today is, is rooted in the powerful self-testimony of the consummate pastor, Paul, who... Uh, in Philippians 3, uh, issues those sort of memorable lines that I'm forgetting everything that is behind. Paul says, I strain forward towards the goal for the prize to which God has called me heavenward in Christ. And insofar as Paul is addressing himself to this church uh, as a pastor and refers to the example of his fellow church leaders, Timothy and Epaphroditus, in the previous chapter, in chapter 2, um, I think that this contains much that is actually descriptive of of Andrew, but also I hope is a helpful encouragement and reminder to you, Andrew, as you step formally into this vocation today. Um, But insofar as Paul is addressing believers in Philippi more broadly, uh, this message is also importantly for all of us. I want to begin, um, before diving into the details of chapter 3, by just stepping back and, and drawing on the, the, letter, the letter to the Philippians in general, because I, there are a few um, potential pitfalls that beset the Christian that are sort of running underneath the surface in Philippians that Paul draws attention to here and there, sometimes explicitly, sometimes uh, implicitly. And I want to canvas the letter just very briefly here. I'm not going to read a lot of the passages, but just draw your attention to a few things that constitute pitfalls that beset us as Christians, but also can be particular pitfalls that, that beset the pastor in pastoral ministry as a, as a starting point before we come to Paul's kind of counterpoint to that in, in chapter 3. The first pitfall um, that can beset all of us as Christians, but pastors in ministry are not immune from this, is pride. So in chapter 1, um, Paul refers to others who preach the gospel um, out of selfish ambition, out of uh, a sense of rivalry, um, those who are interested in preaching Christ for their own gain, so, which is a highly ironic thing to do, right? To turn even the pulpit, which is designed for the proclamation of Christ, that when you leave from here, you have a clearer picture of what Jesus is like and are you more drawn to him. To turn the pulpit into a pedestal on which I stand and, and, and say, look how great or eloquent or profound I am. Especially when the pulpit is cross-shaped like you've got here. I mean, the, the irony can, could, not be, could not be more. Um, and 
the, the danger to the pastor is that you stand up here and say, look at Christ, look at this text that he gives us to think about or ponder, but the subtext of that is, oh, I guess I'm stuck here. Uh, the subtext of that is, look at me. Uh, look at how great I am. Look at how eloquent I am or how well I've thought through the details of this passage. Um, this is described of uh, these other believe, uh, these other folks in chapter 1, but Paul himself in chapter 3, if you look with me now at verses 4 through 6, refers to a previous time in his own life when he would have been uh, much more susceptible to this temptation. Chapter 3 and then verse 4, he says, I have a lot of reasons to be confident in myself, and I'm reading from the NIV here. If someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Okay, so Paul sort of unrolls his spiritual CV here and says, look at everything I could boast about. All the things that I could stand on as a pedestal that would sort of constitute the invitation. Listen to me. I am a somebody. I have weight. I pull some clout. And these sort of reasons for confidence in the flesh, we, this is not just sort of a first century problem, it's a 21st century problem. Um, that I look back on my own heritage with pride, or I look at my sort of academic credentials, or look at my ministry record, the things that I have achieved in ministry. Look at my sort of righteousness level. Here's my righteousness meter that I can sort of hold up in subtle and subversive ways. And this is a pitfall that besets us all, but not least uh, pastors as well. A second pitfall that we can sort of derive by reading between the lines in, in the letter to the Philippians is a little more subtle, and it's maybe it takes a particular form in our own context, but is what I'll call the pitfall of distraction. Um, there's a lot that pastors do, um, which some of you are perhaps aware of, and some of you are maybe unaware of a lot of things that pastors are involved in. They are very busy. They are sort of jack-of-all-trades. They do just about everything, uh, or sometimes, or... Uh, uh, they do what they can. And there can be a lot of distractions. And the busyness is not necessarily intrinsically problematic in itself, but it can be if the kind of the efforts are diffuse in their, in their aims or effects or motivations. And the pastor can, can struggle to, to weigh up and adjudicate what is the best thing for me to be doing right now? What are my priorities and what are the reasons for which I'm doing what I'm doing. When there's so many calls and demands on your time or on your personhood or on your, on your, on your listening ear, uh, distraction can beset the pastor. And in verse 19 of chapter 3, Paul refers to those who, whose God is their stomach, whose glory is in their shame, and then he says their mind is set on earthly things. They're running after all kinds of things, but the things they're running after and trying to pursue and trying to shore up is all at the earthly level. And in the end, it all comes to nothing. Paul himself says back in verse 7 of chapter 3, Whatever may have been gains for me or to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. So compared to the one thing that he's going to advocate that we pursue with all that we are, he says there are a lot of other things that could be gains to me, a lot of things that I could pursue that would be gainful. Uh, for me. And there's a temptation that the pastor can lose the heart of what they're on about and lose a focus in the kind of constant and multiple demands uh, on their time. C.S. Lewis um, hopefully says uh, at one point that there have been men, he says, who, who got so interested in proving the existence of God 
that they came to care nothing for God himself, as if the good Lord had nothing to do but exist. Uh, He goes on to say it's kind of like a book collector who has lost the love of reading. Just, Just look at the collection of books I have. Or someone who's a charity organizer who has lost their concern or care for the poor. In the kind of constant demands in our time, we lose the heart of what we're doing or why we're doing it and lose the kind of the love that generated our, uh, our aims in the first place. So the first pitfall of pride, the second of distraction. And then coming out of somewhat generated by the pitfall of pride, the third pitfall that can be set, uh, all of us, but not least pastors in ministry, is uh, kind of a twin pitfalls of fear and resentment. Um, Paul says in, in chapter 2, if you uh, glance back um, there, he makes a sort of interesting comment in uh, verses 2 and 3. He says, do not do anything out of selfish ambition, but in humility value others above yourselves, not looking out for your own interests but each of you to the interests of others. That's in verse 4. And elsewhere in the letter, he says that everybody looks out for their own interests. That's sort of the natural default position that we have as human beings. So it's a natural kind of um, thing to respond to particular challenges with, uh, with looking out for myself. And if you're looking out for yourself with your own self-interest, you may be tempted, especially if you're in pastoral ministry, where a lot of the stuff you do is behind the scenes, people don't notice it, people don't appreciate it, to build up a sort of a repertoire or a cache of all the stuff that I've done that hasn't been noticed, that I haven't been thanked for or appreciated for, and that can generate resentment. Um, all of us can identify with that in, in, in some respects, but that takes a particular form um, for pastors, perhaps. Um, and sort of a, uh, another way in which pride might generate another pitfall is the, is the pitfall of fear. Paul, uh, to the Philippians in chapter 1, he talks about, he warns them against being frightened by those who oppose you. And Paul himself is opposed by people who are bringing a different kind of gospel uh, in this, he talks about that in this letter. And he doesn't want the Philippians to be frightened by those who oppose him. And he himself gives plenty of evidence that he's not frightened by those who oppose him. But there is the temptation that you can... You can um, sort of re, um, recoil out of fear um, from those who may oppose or from that which is going to be difficult or hard. And different personality types will sort of respond to this challenge differently. I'm a certain kind of personality that I, I really like to be liked. I hope that you, you know, go away from this uh, this morning, um, at least not thinking I'm a, a, I'm an idiot or a jerk or something like that. Uh, I wouldn't mind if you if you went away from from the, our time this morning liking me. And that kind of aspect of my personality can make it very difficult for me sometimes to speak the truth in a situation that really requires it. Uh, but different personalities will will respond to that in different ways. But if I'm looking out for myself and my own self interest, you can see how this can generate on the one hand resentment if people aren't appreciating me or noticing things that I have done. Um, or if I, I don't want to sort of lose face or lose your friendship or lose your, your liking of, of me, um, I might recoil out of fear. So these, are, these two are pitfalls. And Paul himself could have become fearful or resentful of those who he describes in chapter 1 as trying to stir up trouble for him. Okay, so there were people who were trying to make things difficult for Paul deliberately. You know, preaching Christ out of uh, a sense of rivalry to sort of gain followers over against Paul. There was this competition that he found himself in the midst of. 
Um, And Paul also, throughout the letter, makes constant reference to struggles or troubles that he has faced. He talks about the great struggle that you know I have, the troubles I've been through. He talks about being poured out like a drink offering in chapter 2. In in chapter 4, he says, I know what it's like to be in need. I know what it's like to be hungry. Um, And then he talks about the fact that I'm actually in chains right now. Now, all of those experiences that Paul has had could very well have sort of generated resentment in him. Look, I'm in chains. I've gone through lots of troubles. I know what it's like to be in want or to be needy. God, come on, where's the payoff? I need a, a trophy or a plaque or a something um, to, to uh, quell the sort of resentment that bubbles up within me. The fourth pitfall, uh, finally, fourth pitfall that can befall the pastor. And by the way, these are not exhaustive, okay? I'm just, I've restricted myself to Philippians for the uh, purposes of our time together this morning. But there's, you know, probably an infinite number of pitfalls that can be said all of us as believers. But I'm just focusing on four. Uh, A fourth pitfall that can befall the pastor is discouragement. Um, Paul had lots of reasons to be discouraged, um, as I've mentioned already, he's in prison, and he, pr- he mentions in chapter 1 that he says, I hope that I may have sufficient courage so that now, uh, as always, Christ may be exalted in my body. Through, my, through life or death, Christ may, may be exalted through me. But if you read the sort of between the lines there, the, the, the subtext is there's a possibility that Paul may not have sufficient courage, that he might not um, be able to, he, he might be overwhelmed by his his situation, by his circumstances. I've mentioned the opposition that Paul faces, and he says in in chapter 3 that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ, and Paul says, I tell you this with tears. Okay, hear the the heart, the pathos of Paul's language there, that there are enemies of the cross, and that it makes me well up, that there are those who are trying to oppose the, the work of God among you. In addition to that kind of opposition from the outside, there were factions within the church in Philippi. In the beginning of chapter 4, Paul says, I plead with Iodia and I plead with Syntyche that they would agree with each other. There was some kind of a spat going on between some prominent leaders in the church named Iodia and Syntyche who, um, Paul says, I plead with you that you would agree with each other in the Lord. Now that language of pleading gives us a bit of a window into, into the heart that Paul has for the unity in the church here. And if, if this sort of rivalry or the factions continue to, to spin out, that's going to be discouraging for Paul. Um, Paul also hints in chapter 1 when he says, I hope that I may not, not be found to have run in vain, that you would cling to the faith, that you would hold fast to the word, so that I may not, at the end, have run in vain. Um, the, 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 op, the sort of flip side of that may be that if they don't hold to the word, they don't hold fast, he might feel like he's run in vain. That, he, that would be profoundly discouraging for Paul. Or think of his good friend and, and partner in ministry, Epaphroditus, who Paul tells us at the end of chapter 2, um, Epaphroditus almost died. And Paul says, I'm really, really glad that he didn't die because if he had, it would have, it would have come to me as sorrow upon sorrow. It would have been profoundly disheartening and discouraging for Paul. Okay, so Paul's being imprisoned, the opposition from the outside, factions within the church, the possibility that his efforts with the Philippians may be wasted, um, or the relational loss of losing someone like Epaphroditus. We get these sort of windows throughout the letter of Paul's heart and the possibilities that he might be discouraged from different, uh, different of these factors. 
Now, Paul, in response to these possible pitfalls that can beset um, the minister, models for us a posture that is the, the proper posture Rather than sort of focusing on each of these pitfalls, because you know, if, if you look at a if you look at a hole, you're, if, or if you look at uh, at a trap or something, you're more likely to fall into it. So we're not going to actually focus on those pitfalls this morning. What we want to focus on is where Paul encourages us to focus, and this is uh, chapter three and beginning in verse twelve. Let me just read a couple of these verses for you here. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already already arrived at my goal, but I. Press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now let's listen to all the language here, the kind of pressing on, straining forward to attain, um, the yearning, the reaching forward, the, the kind of uh, spatial metaphor that Paul's evoking in our minds here is of kind of a posture of leaning forward, leaning into something that is a- ahead of you. And if I could sort of be a little bit playful with his metaphor and extend it to the pitfalls that we've already discussed that come out of Philippians, um, we could characterize these other pitfalls as leaning in all the directions that are not forward. Okay, so pride, the, the, the pitfall of pride is the temptation to lean inward, to lean on myself. The pitfall of distraction is the temptation to lean sideways to either side. The pitfall of fear or resentment is the temptation to lean backward. Okay, if, you, if you're responding to a situation out of fear, it may be sort of falling backwards, holding back, or resentment is looking back. Look at all that I've done in the past and I haven't been thanked for it. So kind of the temptation to lean backwards. And the posture of, or the, the pitfall of discouragement is the temptation to lean downwards. So in stark contrast to leaning all of those directions, Paul says, I lean forward. I pitch myself forward. Forgetting what is behind, Paul says, and looking towards what is ahead. Well, what is behind? What is it that Paul is leaving behind? Well, he's, he's told us already uh, in the verses I read earlier, chapters four, uh, verses 4 and following, the, the reasons he had to have confidence in the flesh, okay? my, my academic credentials, my ministry record, my righteousness, all the stuff that I did um, before my encounter with Christ in Paul's case, but pastors could be susceptible to this too. Look at all the things I've done. Paul says, I'm, I'm just abandoning all that. I'm not claiming that. I'm not rolling it out. I'm not using it as a pedestal to stand on, to, to garner your praise or to, 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 to produce a claim for myself. I'm forgetting all that. I'm leaving all that behind. And I'm leaving behind all the sort of temptation to have my mind on earthly things, to fill my own stomach or to be concerned only with my own glory in contrast to those who are concerned about those things as I read earlier in verses 19, verse 19 of chapter 3. Um, Paul recognizes that earthly things or the things that are behind him, his sort of credentialing from the past, they're dead ends. They don't get, any, they don't get you anywhere. I mean, just as an example of that, who, who were the people who were sort of peddling the gospel for their own merit over against Paul? We don't even know their names. Forgotten to history. 
So leaving those things that are behind and straining towards what is ahead. All the verbs that Paul uses here in in, uh, verses 12 through 14, I mean, he's, he's pretty repetitive as a way of emphasizing, this is the one thing that I do. Paul says, I'm not, I don't have a sort of a, a sort of individual bespoke strategy for every possible different pitfall that you can face as a pastor. Um, there's like infinite number of things that you can face. There's just one thing that I do, which gives great clarity of focus and vision and effort. One thing I do, I strain forward, I look ahead, I press on, I take hold, I'm straining towards the goal to attain to the resurrection, to gain Christ. And what is it that he is, what's at the object of this sort of forward uh, pitch, this sort of posture of leaning forward. What is it that it's ahead? Well, he refers to it as the prize for which God has called me heavenward. He talks about resurrection, the hope that, my, that our, our, uh, our bodies will be transformed to be like Christ's own body. But ultimately, what's at the heart of what Paul is straining towards is Christ himself. This comes to us in verse Eight, when he says, I consider all this stuff that I'm leaving behind to be rubbish or garbage that I may gain Christ. So it's, let me ask this a different way. What does it actually mean or look like to be leaning forward or, or, or pitching forward? How does that actually look? It's not that Paul is like striving, trying really hard to be a good Christian. That's not what he means when he says sort of straining, yearning towards or... or, or, or um, or um, pressing on towards this goal. He doesn't mean trying harder or striving harder. He doesn't mean that I sort of spend a lot of time dreaming about heaven, this sort of daydreaming about some uh, nebulous goal in the future. Rather, the content of what Paul is leaning towards in 12, verses 12 through 14, I think, and I'm, I want to suggest to you, is actually what he talks about at length in verses 7 through 11. So let me read these verses for us here. Whatever regains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them, uh, my translation here is garbage. That's kind of very kind uh, translation. It's, it's pretty Paul doesn't think very highly about the things he's left behind. Uh, You could have a much more colorful four-letter word there, and it would probably accurately represent what Paul thinks of what's in his past. I consider them all rubbish, uh, garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Then he says this, I want to know Christ to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Okay, so I want to suggest to you that what he's straining towards or pressing into in verses 12 and following, the content of that is Christ himself, which is the focus of verses 7 uh, and following. Christ, for Paul, is the treasure. And why would he, why would Paul think this? Well, the ground or the basis for that comes in, in chapter 2 of Philippians, and I hope, uh, I'm sorry I'm sort of jumping all over the letter. I'm a New Testament teacher, okay? So this is, you can't read a letter to the Philippians out of context. This whole thing is meant to hang together. It was meant to be read all at once. 
on a, on a Sunday worship gathering, and it, it all works together. It hangs together as a co- coherent whole. So in chapter 2, we have this glorious exaltation or celebration of the Lord Jesus Christ, who Paul says uh, didn't consider equality with God anything to be grasped after or seized. He holds that sort of divine prerogative with an open hand and empties himself of that to become the form of a servant, to become a human, to become obedient to the Father, even to the point of death. Now, if that's the, 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 the nature of God, if God is that kind of a being who holds his sort of divine prerogative openly and becomes taking the form of a servant, um, that's a particular kind of God who I would suggest um, elicits and commands our trust, our confidence, and elicits our love. Paul responds to that kind of a God and says, he's my treasure. I press on to take hold of him. I want to be um, fully his. I want him. But that, that him in chapter 2 goes on, the climax, of course, is that although he was obedient to God to the point of death, even death on the cross, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So Paul looks back and looks at what Jesus has achieved. Then he looks forward and says, this is, this is where all of human history is headed. One day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. This is the end, the goal, the telos of history. We're all going to end up there. So with that kind of profound theological awareness... Paul makes Christ as his primary goal now. And in doing so, he's bringing himself into alignment with the trajectory of history. And so what does he say in back to chapter 3? And um, um, uh, what's the verse? Uh, he, he says, I, um, in verses 7 and, and following, that he makes Christ his primary goal. I want to gain Christ and be found in him. He makes Christ his own Lord. So although at the end of history we'll all bend the knee and um, acknowledge Christ as Lord, Paul has done that already now. And so he's bringing himself into alignment with the goal of history and makes Christ his treasure. He loves him, he loves Jesus, and aligns himself with that kind of end. But not only that, not only is Christ Paul's treasure, not only does he say, I want to gain Christ, but he says in verse 8, I want to gain uh, Christ, and beginning of verse 9, and be found in him. Now, there is a wonderful goal to have, isn't it? That when people find me, when I am found, or when God finds me, or at the end of history, when I am found by history, I am found to be in him. What does that tell us about Paul's one thing that he's doing here? One thing he's pitching forward uh, to, to achieve is that Christ is his primary context. Christ is the sphere in which Paul does all of his working, loving, ministering, preaching. Christ is his, is his, is his context. That means to be found in Christ means That for Paul, the most important thing about him, the most fundamental truth about Paul is not, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. It's not, I went to Briarcrest. 
It's not I have this degree. It's not I've pastored for this long. It's not that I've done all these great things. Those are not the most important or primary things about Paul. The most fundamental marker of his identity is that he is in Christ. That is what is most true of Paul. His status as righteous is not something he's achieved. It's something that comes to him because of his connectivity to Christ. And Christ is the primary influence on his whole way of viewing the world, what he values, what he prioritizes, what he aims for, and how he aims for those things. Even Paul is so uh, enamored is too weak, but he's so sort of bound up and caught up in the reality of Christ that he says these really striking words in verse 10. Draw your attention to verse 10. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. And then he says this, and the participation in his sufferings. Paul actually views suffering as the opportunity to identify more closely with Jesus. Because Jesus had been obedient to death, even death on a cross. If the goal of history is the knee bent before Christ and confessing him as Lord, and if the kind of primary identity marker of who you are is that you are in Christ, and the most important treasure in your life is Christ, then if even suffering can be viewed as a, as a, as a way of connecting or getting closer to Jesus. So Paul says, I want to participate even in suffering because that's a way of participating with Christ. Well, let me suggest um, to you and to us this morning that it is from this posture of leaning forward, pressing on into and to gain Christ and have him as our primary context, the primary identifying marker. It's from this posture that you can most effectively pastor others. And I know that you know this, Andrew. Paul himself holds himself up as an example or as a model for the believers in Philippi, which might strike us initially as a bit arrogant. Look, skip with me a couple of verses down to verse 17 of chapter 3, when he says, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Now, what Paul is saying here is that follow me, follow my example, but not it's not a carte blanche, just do whatever Paul does, but follow me insofar as I am pressing into this goal, insofar as Christ is my prime treasure, insofar as I am embodying the kind of character and personality of, of Jesus by even, a, even identifying with him in suffering, um, to share with him in his resurrection and his exaltation, um, to follow me insofar as I lean into Christ. And just to demonstrate that Paul's not really that concerned about himself at all, he says, it's not really, it's not me, it's, it's anybody who's doing kind of as we are doing. And he's already given an example towards the end of chapter 2 of others that he points to as sort of exemplars of, of, of what all of us, is, the posture that all of us as Christians should inhabit, when he points to Timothy and Epaphroditus as great examples of Christ-formed um, walking, Christ-formed leaning, Christ-aimed uh, um, leaning forwards. So he says, follow us insofar as we're leaning into Christ, insofar as we act like Jesus. You see, the whole purpose or the whole heart of the pastoral vocation is to point to Jesus. 
You do that as a pastor in word, as you proclaim Christ from a pulpit, but you also do so in the posture that you inhabit. The pastoral vocation is to point to Jesus. Some of the old, um, I'm not sure if this one has it, but some, some older sort of traditional pulpits would have, sometimes quite often have a plaque or inscription on the inside of the pulpit that only the pastor could, could see um, that said, Sir, we would see Jesus. It's a line that comes from uh, John chapter 12, and some Greeks come to Andrew and ask him uh, to see Jesus. And Andrew, people come here to see Jesus. That is the pastoral role, to point to Jesus in what you say and in the posture that you inhabit. The irony is that you don't pastor well by trying to be a pastor, because that ends up functionally being sort of a look at me and do what I am doing because I'm trying to do this thing. Remember what Paul says in in chapter 3 here. He says, not that I have already obtained all this. I haven't actually arrived at perfection. I'm not there yet. Don't follow exactly what I'm doing, but follow my aim. Follow my posture. Follow the goal that I've set myself towards. So actually look beyond me, Paul uh, is essentially saying. Um, See, don't pastor by trying to be a pastor. And ironically, you don't even pastor well by focusing on people ultimately, in trying to address all of their needs, as if any pastor could. You pastor best by pointing to Christ. And your ministry is effective to the degree that you treasure Jesus above all else, that you're leaning into him, and that you inhabit Christ as your primary space, your primary context. I think Eugene Peterson, the um, recently departed pastor, uh, is getting at at a similar kind of point in his book, Working the Angles, uh, the subtitle of which is The Shape of Pastoral Integrity. Uh, It's a a great subtitle, Pastoral Integrity, the idea that there should be alignment with what is said and what is embodied, what what is actually inhabited in the posture. And what Peterson goes goes on to outline in his book is that pastoral ministry, what gives the shape to the pastor's work... uh, what is like what gives shape to a triangle are the, the kind of three angles of the triangle that, that give the triangle its shape. But the angles are the smallest points you can't see. They're the invisible parts of pastoral ministry. What you see, the visible parts of pastoral ministry, are the lines that make up, make up the triangle. But the, the invisible aspects of pastoral ministry, the hidden parts, are what he calls uh, the, the angles. And he talks about these as being prayer, scripture, and spiritual direction. Cultivating a, 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 a posture of uh, leaning into Christ through the study of the Word, through prayer and spiritual direction. So, uh, finally, um, how does all, how does this posture that I've um, exhorted us towards this morning of leaning into Christ address the pitfalls that we began with? Let's come full circle as we wrap up here this morning. Well, the pitfall of pride, the temptation to lean inward, that temptation seems rather foolish and shoddy when you look at Christ in chapter 2, in that great glorious celebration of Jesus in that kind of hymn of chapter 2, when we read that Christ, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. If the one who has all divine prerogatives did and cling to divinity, on what basis would anybody, not least the pastor, 
use their sort of CV or credentials or experience or um, whatever as a kind of a platform for pride. And so Paul exhibits this himself. The pressure is off for Paul. He's able freely to say, I've, I've not reached the goal. I'm not there yet. Uh, I haven't yet arrived. And he's free to say that. There's a kind of a freedom of honesty that the pastor can inhabit um, as Christ teases open our hands um, to release those things that we so tenaciously cling to to build up our own sense of glory or ego. The pitfall of distraction, the temptation to lean to either side, um, is gloriously dissipated with the focal point that we have in that Christ hymn that at the end of human history, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And so that's the goal that Paul sets for himself. And he says, I consider everything, everything that may have been to my profit or for my gain, I consider all a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He has made the Lord of all history his own Lord. And that sort of gives him focus in his ministry. Over against the pitfall of pitfalls of resentment or fear, the temptations to lean backwards or to fall backwards. If we think of Christ who humbled himself and became obedient to death, if you meditate on that, allow your heart to chew on that, that he humbled himself and became obedient to death, that is the foundation out of which Paul can say of the the competitors who are peddling the gospel for profit in chapter 1. What does he say about them? He says, what does it matter? I don't actually care if they're preaching Christ out of a rivalry or trying to usurp my, uh, my status with you. What does it matter, Paul says? The important thing is that in every way Christ is preached. Or again, meditating on the fact that Christ humbled himself and became obedient to death is the foundation for Paul saying in chapter 1, to live as Christ... To die is gain. I don't fear even death. If you don't fear death, anything else is sort of small beans compared to dying. So there's a courage that comes to the, to the pastor who has t- chosen as their point of meditation the one who humbled himself, became obedient to death, and was exonerated um, out of that in the raising of Jesus from the dead. And finally, the pitfall of discouragement, that temptation to lean downwards. Christ our Lord was obedient even to death on the cross. But the very next line in that glorious hymn in chapter 2, therefore God exalted him to the highest place. There is hope at the heart of Christian faith and Christian ministry. And so Paul, out of that, because of his connection to Christ, he wants to identify with Christ in his suffering, but he also gets to identify with Christ in his resurrection, uh, the resurrection hope that is held out before Paul. And so he says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. That's a glorious line. Sometimes in despair or in discouragement as a pastor, sometimes the only thing you can do is cling to that. Um, that Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. I lack the strength even to hold on but I know that Christ is holding on to me. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer similarly said from prison, he said, who am I? I don't even know who I am anymore. But Bonhoeffer says, whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. And that represents the posture of a pastor who's leaning into Christ. So, Andrew, in conclusion, I 
invite you to continue inhabiting the posture that I know you to be modeling so well for these people here uh, and for the community around, that you would, I invite you to continue to lean ever more deeply into Christ. Um, those of you who've done downhill skiing know that counterintuitively, you are, things go the best when you actually lean down the hill. If you are tempted to do what is, you're inclined to do and lean backwards, you're most likely to end up on your backside. But leaning forward is, is the most effective way to, to ski downhill. So, Andrew, lean into Christ. And for the rest of you, um, this is not a spectator event. You're not just watching Andrew do this, um, but leaning into Christ yourselves. You're all part of the, the peloton uh, with Andrew. And I realize it is mixed, mixed metaphors of skiing and cycling, but you'll get the gist of it. Let me uh, pray for us and pray for you, Andrew, especially as we close. Father, we thank you for your ultimate gift to us in the person of your Son, Jesus, who has loved us and given himself for us and calls us upward and onward to the great and glorious hope that we may be found in Christ, that we may gain Christ. I ask your rich blessing on this congregation as they labor together by the power of your Spirit in Christ, to press on towards the goal for which you have called them. And I ask a special blessing on Andrew as he shepherds uh, this congregation here, that you would be seen clearly in him, that you would encourage him and give him singularity of focus and vision, that the name of Jesus would be exalted in this place. It's in that name that we pray. Amen.